All right, good morning. Can I have you all turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. You new with us, God bless you, welcome. It's good to see you this morning. We are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary Chapel on Sunday morning. And we come to chapter 12, verse 1, which reads, Then six days before the Passover. Now, let me stop here and just say this. We are about to enter, or we have just entered, the second half of John's Gospel. And let me just say that as we look at the four Gospels, we can see that three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are similar. Because of this, they are known as the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a Greek word meaning to see together or to share a common point of view. The synoptic Gospels focus primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry, his public teachings up in the Galilee. So he, it focuses primarily on Jesus' Galilean ministry and public teachings, whereas John, John's gospel is unique in that it focuses mainly on Jesus' Judean ministry and his private teachings to his disciples, primarily. Almost one half of John's entire gospel deals with the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. And half of that focuses on the last 12 hours of his life before the cross. Now guys, that gives us a, a detailed look into the final hours of Jesus' life that we don't get from the synoptic gospels. And that's why John's gospel is such a blessing. Because it focuses in on, in our minds, probably the most important 12 to 24 hours of his life. I know the last 12 before the cross especially. Uh, and of course, three days later, the, the resurrection. But it, it, this part of John's gospel is so uh, uh, detailed. It gives us such a great look at the final hours of Jesus' life that it, it's really a blessing. It, especially when you realize, because it focuses on the last few hours of Jesus' life before the cross primarily... Those were the hours that Jesus was build, building into his men. He was giving them final discourses. He was uh, teaching them some final things as he was ready to hand the ministry over to him as he was going to go back to the Father soon. So this is a very important uh, you know, look at the last hours of Jesus' life. And so as we come to John chapter 12, again we come to the final week of Jesus' life on the earth before his crucifixion. So again, verse 1. Then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, let me review quickly from our last study, which actually became the first of a two-part message I've called the fragrance of worship, the fragrance of worship. Of all the places in the Bible where worship is talked about, and there are many places, this is the only place I can think of. If you can think of others, let me know. This is the only place in Scripture I can think of where somebody actually exemplified it. When Mary of Bethany broke open that alabaster flask of precious oil of spikenard and poured it upon Jesus, preparing his body for burial, well, she became a living illustration 
of what a life of worship truly means. Why is it so important that we understand what a life of worship is all about? And let me just stop and say this to you. Yesterday I wrestled a little bit with even doing this message. And the reason was, it's like, Lord, we're living at a time unlike any in my lifetime and many others' lifetimes. We don't know what the future is going to bring. Everything seems uncertain. Um, we've been living with a virus for, you know, nine months, and now they're talking about a, uh, a resurgence of it. People have lost their jobs, and they're not coming back. Other people, their jobs are in limbo. Uh, there is fear. There is uh, a panic among a lot of people. Uh, many have committed suicide. And Lord, I'm going to be doing a message about worship. It doesn't seem it like it fits. It doesn't seem like, you know, it seems like we should be doing something maybe more practical. And the Lord stopped me. I said, Phil, there is always going to be a crisis. There's always going to be some uncertainty for the future. There is always going to be a sickness. There's always going to be people suffering with loss. You have to understand that life produces a lot of things that can affect people in some very negative ways. The way to help people is not to run around dealing with symptoms. It's to get the core of the matter, the heart. Worship is about the heart. We're going to see this in just a moment. And if your heart is close to the Lord, if your heart is knit to him, as one man said, if you kneel before God, you can stand up to any man or any crisis. So this is not a peripheral issue. This is the issue, worship. Jesus told us, this is what the Father is really looking for. This is what he is seeking after, John 4, 24. He is looking for true worshipers. It didn't say he's looking for happy people, or problem-free people, or people who are, you know, got the future nailed down. He's looking for true worshipers. Because if a person is a true worshiper, it will not only affect the way they handle crises and adversity, it will be a life-changing um, thing in and of itself. Mary of Bethany was a true worshiper. And she is being held up by the Holy Spirit as a living illustration to all of God's people. Listen of what a life of worship is all about for the rest of us. Listen to understand and emulate. This is what it's all about. The Holy Spirit is lifting up Mary of Bethany as a living illustration of what worship is all about because he wants to point to her and say, you see her? She understood. She was a worshiper. And she sat at Jesus' feet. She was the only one, it seems, that knew he was going to die soon disciples didn't know that he told them numerous times martha was so busy serving she didn't have time to sit and listen she was caught off guard mary was the only one it seems that really understood jesus was going to die soon and she wanted to anoint his body for burial because she was a worshiper and all worshipers take time at his feet and three times mary is mentioned in the gospels three times she's at the feet of jesus listening and learning and loving and just amazing what does Mary teach us about worship? And again, we're still reviewing, reviewing from last time. As she emulates worship, what does she teach us about the nature of true worship? First of all, guys, that true worship is costly. 
True worship is costly. Verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Guys, once again, it cost Mary something very precious to worship her Lord in this way. We are told that this pound of spikenard was worth 300 denarii, just about a, uh, a um, year's wage for a working man or a soldier. They got paid one denarius a day. So, you know, 300 denarii would be uh, 300 days or almost a whole year. The first lesson we learn from Mary's act of worship is that worship involves sacrifice by giving to God what is most precious to us, not the leftovers of our time, our energy, or our possessions. As David said, and maybe she had David in mind when she did this act of worship, he said, I will not give to my God an offering. Back then the offerings were acts of worship. I will not give to my God or I will not worship my God through that which cost me nothing. If, if our relationship with Jesus isn't costing us anything, if we're not giving up anything, it's worthless. It's useless. I mean, you know, people kind of sprinkle Jesus on their life like the salt in their soup or the, you know, the icing on the cake, we'll say. Jesus doesn't want to be something you add to your life to make it more, you know, flavorful or sweet. He needs to be your life. That's what Mary exemplifies. Jesus was her life. And so it's very important that we understand that true worship is costly. And because of it, number two, true worship is criticized. Verse four, then one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Such a spiritual man. It's amazing how spiritual people can be when they're critiquing your life. Although verse 6 tells us he didn't care about the poor. He was the guy in charge of the money bag and used to dip into it. Look, when you begin to worship Jesus, there will often be those in your life, sometimes those closest to you. This was one of the disciples, one of the apostles. This was a person that was very close to Jesus. But when you begin to worship the Lord truly worship him, there's often going to be those like Judas who will criticize you for, you know, wasting your time, your money, your life, basically. Any other sacrifice that you make in service to Jesus, in their minds, they're saying, what a wa why this waste? Why this waste? As we said last week, these are the first recorded words of Judas Iscariot in the Gospels. Now, this is not the first time he ever talked, I'm sure. But the Holy Spirit chose to, to make this the first recorded words of Judas in the Gospels because it really gets at where his heart was at. See, any true worshiper understands the value of worship. Would never say worship is a waste. The only reason Judas did this was because not only was he not a spiritual man, he was not a true worshiper. He wasn't even saved. We're going to see that when we get to chapter 13. Judas wasn't saved. He was one of the apostles, but he wasn't born again. Now, of course, murmurers in the body of Christ, many of whom are not saved, 
There are tares everywhere, and the devil keeps sowing more tares into the church in preparation for the last days. We're in the last days, but the time prior to the Antichrist uh, revealing himself. And these tares among the wheat are murmurers. They're complainers. They are being used by the devil to rip down churches, to demoralize true Christians, to get us looking at the temporal and get our eyes off the eternal. And so when Judas began to put down Mary's act of worship, we read Matthew 26, verse 8, the other disciples chimed in because murmurers and complainers always infect the true people of God. And they also began to say, yeah, yeah, why this waste? Look, when you come to a place where you want to go all out for Jesus, making a total commitment to him, to serve him and worship him with all of your heart and life, you will always run into those who will say to you, why this waste? Why, why are you wasting your life? You want to be a missionary where? Are you crazy? You want to give up a good-paying job to start pastoring some small inner-city church? Well, you don't have to be a fanatic. The idea of putting the Lord first and giving him our best is always, always the right thing to do. And it's what a life of true worship is all about. Number three, true worship is Christ-centered. It's always focusing on Jesus. Never myself. There are those Christians, as we said last time, they are really at the center of their worship. What do, you, what do you mean? Well, yeah, some of them worship themselves. They may not put it that way. But when they come to church, they pick out churches where the music, the worship, quote-unquote, is so high energy and so, you know, climb the walls and do backflips kind of energy. This is why they come to that church, because it's not about worshiping the Lord. It's about the, the high they get from that kind of worship. True worship is Christ-centered. Verse 7, But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let me also read Mark 14, verses 6 and 7. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish... You may do them good, but me you do not have always. Guys, listen, Jesus wasn't being insensitive to the needs of the poor. He went around the last three and a half years ministering to the poor and feeding them and healing them and so on. His whole ministry was based around taking care of poor people and loving them and giving them hope and physical healing and all those other things. Jesus wasn't saying... The poor are unimportant. He was saying worship is of supreme importance. Taking care of the poor is an important thing. But the worship of God is the, is the most important thing. You know, as Christians, we are first and foremost worshipers. Again, John 4, verses 23 and 4. But listen, if we truly love and worship God, we will be concerned for the welfare of those made in his image. That's just the way it is. 
You can't love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and then neglect people made in His image. The Holy Spirit won't let you. Romans 5, 5, once you're saved, He pours, the Holy Spirit does, is poured into your heart and He pours into your heart God's love, agape love. <coughs> and once agape love fills your heart, you can't help but love others because that's the nature of God who now fills you. It's important to understand that meeting human needs always flows from the worship of God and must never come before it. Otherwise, the church becomes just another social agency like the Red Cross, dealing with physical needs, physical needs, to the neglect of the spiritual needs. A lot of liberal churches, that's where they're coming from. But if we only focus on the physical... The church becomes just another social agency and ceases to be a spiritual entity, the body of Christ. Look, we can feed the hungry and clothe the naked, but if that's all we do, if all we do is minister to the physical man and neglect the spiritual man, again, all we're doing is launching them into a Christless eternity with a full belly and a warm body. Our main responsibility is to preach the good news to everyone we come in contact with. In the course of doing that, yes, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, help the disadvantaged. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But those things should take a backseat to our primary mission, which is saving the lost. Isn't that why our Savior came? What is it, Luke 19:10? I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. Didn't Jesus tell us that? That was his heart. He didn't say, I have come to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, even raise the dead. Now, he did all those things in the course of ministry, but only to elevate people's thinking and understanding to their true need, which is spiritual, not physical. It's hard to minister eternal life to somebody who's starving, though, isn't it? That's how we feed the hungry. Or somebody who is shivering because they have ragged clothes on. Sure, give them something warm to wear, but let's do it in the context of sharing the gospel with them then. That is why the church exists. This is our mission, to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which alone can listen, save the lost, and turn them into true worshipers, because that is what the Father is truly seeking after, true worshipers. It's the worship of God that must be our consuming passion. And the motivation for everything we do in the Christian life. Again, when you are a true worshiper, it's not about what you do, it's about what you are. Which means you're connected to God. The life of God fills you. The Holy Spirit is in you. And God is reaching out through you. You're His eyes, you're His hands, you're His feet. To love those who are lost, to share with them the gospel of hope. And to tell them that God loves them even though their circumstances are screaming something different they got to get their eyes off their circumstances and on to God. Just as somebody said very close to me yesterday, I can't really believe in a God who lets little kids be born with cancer and in and, and, and situations where they're hungry and so on. This is not the, girl, the world God wanted us to live in. This is a fallen world, a world we have chosen for ourselves. 
Now, God has allowed it because he's given us a free will. Yeah, but why doesn't he fix it? He's in the process of doing that. That's what Jesus' coming was all about. And he's coming back soon to fix this mess. Because guess what? Man can't do it. Republicans can't do it. Democrats can't do it. Independents can't do it. But Jesus Christ can do it. This is not the world God wanted us to live in. But he's using the consequences of our own error and the suffering it has brought into this world to drive us to him. Our worship of God must be the consuming passion that drives everything we do as a church. We have to be Christ-centered when we minister, not self-centered in the sense it makes me feel good when I go out and feed hungry people. That just builds me up. It's not about building you up. That's the point. People don't get it. If they are in ministry so often, it's because it makes them feel good about themselves. It's not, ministry is not about you feeling good about yourself. It's about you loving and worshiping Jesus and continuing the work he began because he loves hurting people and so on. Well, number four, true worship comes through brokenness. I'll have to, ha I'll have to read from Mark 14, verse 3 on this one. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, Jesus, a woman came, we know her name is Mary of Bethany, having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Alabaster is a soft, translucent stone that is easily carved and polished. Very pretty, and so it was often used for, to uh, hold... Uh, perfumed oils, expensive. This was high-end stuff, we would say, okay? Uh, even uh, very costly ointments. They used to have the, like creams, like we would think of a cream or an ointment uh, that was uh, perfumed, and they would put these in alabaster uh, little boxes, okay? Alabaster perfume bottles were sealed, disposable containers that could only be opened by breaking them. Once they were broken and the contents inside was used up completely, the alabaster flask was discarded. It wasn't uh, valuable. It wasn't valuable. Just like the containers that hold the Holy Spirit. That's why God said that he has put this treasure in what? Beautiful, ornate containers? in what earthen vessels it's not us who is important it's the one who lives inside of us alabaster the alabaster flask had to be broken before the fragrant oil could flow broken and flow oil in the scriptures is often symbolic of the holy spirit which the bible says must fill us constantly in fact, we know Ephesians, Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's what the Greek is actually saying, be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. That brings up a very important point that I want to make. God doesn't want our lives to be reservoirs that contain the Holy Spirit. Just 
you know, pour into us and here's where it stays. No, he wants our lives to be channels through which the Holy Spirit flows. That's where we have to be connected to God every single day in fellowship. It allows the life of God, the Holy Spirit, to flow into us, but the goal is through us. We'll learn about that. Well, we actually learn about that in John 7. Very important. How the Holy Spirit wants to be flowing through our lives. The idea is pouring onto others around us, bringing them to Christ or helping them walk with Him. Our lives are not to be reservoirs that simply contain the Holy Spirit. God wants them to be channels through which the Holy Spirit can flow. So in that regard, the alabaster flask becomes more of an illustration of the believer than Mary does at this point, all right, when we talk about brokenness. But the container is us. That alabaster flask at this point is more likened to us than Mary, but you understand the point. The Holy Spirit can't flow from our lives in worship and power until we are first broken, and then and only then can we truly worship God. Look, the broken person, excuse me, it is the broken person who worships God, not the proud, arrogant, selfish, or self-confident person. Understand that. Proud people cannot worship God. I'm not saying they can't come to church and sing. I'm just saying God won't accept it. Brokenness is essentially, guys, the end of self. The end of self. The end of the stubborn, selfish, self-willed, self-sufficient life. Brokenness gives way to humility and humility to surrender. And both humility and surrender provide the only environment in which true worship can grow and flourish. Mary's worship was humble, even humiliating, even humiliating. Most people would have been embarrassed to kneel there in public with, you know, everyone watching as she anointed Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. I can't get some people to come to church and raise their hands when they're singing to the Lord. I mean, you know, if you're not a hand raiser, I'm not attacking you. But there are some folks who, I, I can't raise my hands in church. How's that going to look? Well, it looks like you're worshiping the Lord. But, but, you know, you compare that with Mary, who came into a crowded room, knelt at Jesus' feet, broke the alabaster flask, poured the oil on his feet and his head, Matthew tells us, began to wipe his feet with her hair. And it didn't matter to Mary. At that point, I don't think Mary even saw anybody else in the room. I think she had blocked out everyone. All she saw was Jesus. That's really true worship. When you come to church and you're so lost in Jesus when you sing his praises, that you're not, I don't, you don't care what, if you raise your hand. You don't care. Now, if you start dancing around the room, we care. We'll have to ask you to sit down. But, hey, at home, dance all you want. But in corporate worship, let's keep it where we're not distracting people. But you understand. I think at this moment, as she stooped there and was 
wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. She was totally lost in her love of him. He was all she saw. I don't know if you know this, but back then, no woman ever let down her hair in public. It just wasn't done. That was an intimate act reserved only for her private moments with her husband. Maybe that's one of the reasons that Mary didn't mind giving up her dowry. Remember we said this last time? Her dad was gone by this time. She was not married. In those days, most men, if not all men, would not marry a woman if she didn't have a dowry. And so Mary, in the hopes of having a husband someday and a family, had invested in this very costly oil of spikenard, many believed to be a dowry. If somebody wanted to marry her, that she would be able to give him her dowry and have a family. Well, she so freely gave up that alabaster flask and of, of oil of spikenard, because in my mind, the, the way I think, Mary thought, I think that she thought, I'm already married. I'm married to Jesus. I love him with all my heart. I don't need a man. Now, some are given the gift of singleness. I'm not saying if you really want a spouse, that that's a bad thing. No, no, it's a, it's a good thing. I'm just saying, though, some people have been given the gift of singleness, and they don't need a spouse. Mary was one of these people because she was so in love with Jesus. In her mind, he was her husband. He was her first and only true love. You know, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 15 says that a woman's hair is her what? Glory. A woman's hair is her glory. So what is the Holy Spirit teaching us through this act of worship? Mary letting down her hair and wiping Jesus' feet, the lowliest part of the body. The feet in Jewish culture was the dirtiest part of the body, the bottom of the feet, because that was the part of the body that came in contact with the world. And that's why nobody wanted to wash anyone else's feet. And it was given to the lowliest servant of a household. I believe the Holy Spirit is teaching us, as Mary took her hair and was wiping Jesus' feet, that she was giving up her glory to Jesus. She was giving him his, her glory. She was putting him first, serving him by anointing him for burial. It wasn't about her recognition, her glory. It was about using her life to draw glory to him. You know, in the daily devotional, Amazing Grace, 366 inspiring hymns, hymn stories for daily devotions. I have this on my computer. Maybe some of you have it too. The August 30th entry, which is about a week ago, is about a man named Judson Van Deventer. He was born in 1855, died in 1939. The writer of that devotional says this, and I quote, the Bible teaches us that brokenness is a prerequisite to blessings and usefulness. No one ever achieves spiritual greatness until he has first until he has fully surrendered himself to God. Victorious living comes only as we abandon ourselves to the lordship of Christ, becoming his loving bond slave. God's best for our lives is not the result of struggle. Rather, it is simply the acceptance of his perfect will and the recognition of his authority in every area of our lives. Then the author includes this little stanza. It goes like this. 
higher than the, than the highest heaven, deeper than the deepest sea. Lord, thy love at last hath conquered. Grant me now my supplication, none of self and all of thee. The author says Judson Van Deventer wrote this text after surrendering his many talents to his all-wise Savior. He writes, Van Deventer writes, For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last the pivotal hour of my life came and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered down deep in my soul a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart, and touching a tender chord, he caused me to sing. He became a great uh, hymn writer. The author says, after making his decision to devote his life to Christian service, Van Deventer ministered with much blessing and extensive evangelistic work, both at home and abroad. Billy Graham is one of many who claim that Judson Van Deventer had greatly influenced their lives in ministry. He went on to write the lyrics of the beautiful hymn, All to Jesus I Surrender. It goes like this. All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender, humbly at his feet I bow. Worldly pleasures all forsaken, take me, take me, Jesus, now. All to Jesus I surrender, make me Savior, holy thine. Let me feel the Holy Spirit, truly know that thou art mine. All to Jesus I surrender, Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power, let thy blessings fall on me. And here's the chorus, I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. Folks, that's what a life of worship is all about. Brokenness and surrender. Well, I am not there. Thank you for your honesty. Pray. That kind of devotion has to come from the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can manufacture or whip up. We're not talking about an emotional high. We're talking about a deep-rooted love. And that comes from the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you where to start. Get into the Word. And when you read it, read it as God's love letter to you. Soak it in. And pray those verses as you read them. Oh, I, Lord, I need this. Give me grace to walk this way or live this way. Oh, Lord, I know you love me. Thank you for telling me this in your Word over and over now. Give me grace to live it out in my life as I, as I show this love to others. Number five. True worship takes on the fragrance of Jesus. I love this one. Beginning of verse 3, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. Let me stop there. As Mary wiped the fragrant oil from Jesus' feet, listen, she took on his fragrance. That's what happens in worship. The more we do it, the more you take on the sweet fragrance of Jesus. I won't have you turn to these two scriptures. Let me read them to you. 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15. Paul said, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ, if you're a worshiper. We are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. What does it mean to be a fragrance of the, the fragrance of Christ? 
Well, I'll couple that with what Paul said in Ephesians 5, because I think they go hand in hand. I think he had the same thought in mind when he wrote both passages. He tells us in verse 2 to walk in love, as Christ also loved us and has given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice for God, a sweet-smelling aroma. The worshipful life is a sacrificial life. That's the life that Jesus lived, by the way. The more we sacrifice our desires and our goals and our glory to worship him, which means we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. See, that's the heart of a worshiper. That's the heart of a worshiper. That we die to self, take up our crosses, and follow Jesus. That's what he did for us. He followed the Father's will to the letter. Laying aside his glory, Philippians 2. Becoming lowly, taking on the body of flesh, that he might die for us. The more you do that, the more you deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus, a beautiful transformation begins to take place. Second Corinthians 3.18, you become more and more transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And as that happens, our lives become a living sacrifice to God and in the process, a sweet-smelling Aroma, or as we have said it, the fragrance of Jesus. And notice the end of verse 12. I'm sorry, notice the end of verse 3 in chapter 12. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Guys, the Holy Spirit never wastes words. You would be prone to read over that. You know, she poured the alabaster, the, opened the flask and poured the oil on Jesus, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Great, verse 4. No, no, not verse 4. The Holy Spirit put that there for a reason. He was trying to teach us something. And that is when you truly worship the Lord, the fragrance of worship will fill your home and affect everything and everyone in your home. Everything, what do you mean? Every conversation? Everything you watch, everything you listen to, everything you do. And will affect everyone in your home, your family. It'll affect your husband, your wife, your kids. Look, if somebody has said, your kids probably won't remember much of what you said. They'll never forget what you were, right? How did he word it? The gentleman I heard, it, kids, I think it was Swindoll, he said this. Your kids will probably never remember what you say, but they will never forget what you were. When we talk about being a true worshiper, we're not talking about the act of worship. That's part of it. But it flows from a heart of worship. I mean, you're a worshiper. That's a noun. You're, and, and, and then the verb is you worship. But your kids pick up, but everyone picks up on in your home if you're truly a worshiper. Your kids aren't dumb. Kids are smart. They know when mom and dad come to church, they act one way and on the way home or even on the way to church. And at home, they act completely differently. There's yelling, there's screaming, there's fighting. And then Sunday morning, and even on the, on the way to church, there's fighting in the car. Church parking lots have done more to reconcile bad marriages than any counselor has ever done. Because as soon as a couple hits the church parking lot, a wonderful transformation takes place. The fighting stops. The swearing stops. The cussing. Now it's 
getting out of the car. Oh, hey, praise the Lord, John. Yeah, you know, and we're, we're interacting with people in church. We're the, the epitome of spirituality. And we backslide as soon as we get into the car on the way home, right? I mean, God knows. Come on. And if there's kids in the back, they certainly see that. If you really want your children to grow up loving the Lord and worshiping him, then you must first be a worshiper of God, and that starts in your house, in your private moments. David said in Psalm 103 or somewhere around there, 101, I will, I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing unclean before my eyes. I mean, a life that loves God begins in the home. In the heart, but then in the home, in your private moments. You can be a true worshiper at church if you're a true worshiper at home, but you can't be, you, you know, if you're not a true worshiper at home, when you come to church, you can worship, but it, it's not the same, obviously. All right, we've looked at five. We'll look at one more. We'll close. Here are the first five. True worship is costly. True worship is criticized. True worship is Christ-centered. True worship comes through brokenness. Number five, true worship takes on the fragrance of Jesus. And finally, number six, a life of true worship will never be forgotten. A life of true worship will never be forgotten. For this, I'll read to you from Matthew 26, verse 13. Jesus said about Mary, Assuredly, I say to you, whenever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a, a memorial to her. Everyone who has read the gospels down through the centuries knows about Mary, Mary of Bethany, and what she did in that little village 2,000 years ago, it has not been forgotten. Yes, it was costly for her to worship Jesus by giving to him what was most precious to her. And yes, she was criticized for being so extravagant in her love and devotion to Jesus. But what God is teaching us is a life lived to worship the Lord will not be forgotten in this life nor in the life to come. Look, we call our daughters Mary, but no sane parent would ever name his son Judas. That name has become synonymous with treachery and, and betrayal. We could say that Mary and Judas are seen in contrast, contrast in Proverbs 10, verse 7, which reads, The memory of the just is blessed, but the name of the wicked shall rot. Well, I think that you don't have to say anymore. May the Lord work in each of us, giving us a heart of true worship like Mary. Now, let me close. And because this is important, all right? As I said earlier, John, Jesus said in John 4 that this is what the Father is looking for, true worshipers, which implies there are false worshipers out there somewhere. Uh, you remember what, you can turn there, John chapter 4. I think it's important that we close with this because we need to understand once again this whole idea of being a true worshiper or a false worshiper. Now, of course, the context here is, I'll let you read the whole chapter on your own, but Jesus is talking to a woman of Samaria there by the well of Sychar. And they have this conversation going, and he has just revealed to her some of the deepest uh, you know, incidents of her life, and she now recognizes he's not just any man, he's special. 
And so in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. That would be in uh, Samaria on Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans worshipped. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. He has just gotten done telling her her, her worship is false. You offer God false worship. We Jews, we know how to worship because God told us how. He made a covenant with us based on worship. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Guys, the term true worshipers, if you haven't figured it out already, is synonymous with true Christians. So we're not talking about true Christians, some that worship right, some that worship wrong, although there are some of those out there. No, no, the context is true worshipers as opposed to false worshipers. True believers as opposed to false believers. That, that's the context, okay? So again, the term true worshipers is synonymous with true Christians. And Jesus said right here in John 4 that true worship isn't a matter of locality. Not in the new covenant it isn't. Because in the new covenant we become the temple of God and the spirit of God moves in. And so everywhere we go is a place of worship. That was a dramatic departure from the Old Covenant where God specifically said you don't just worship God anywhere by offering your animals any place you like. You bring them to the temple. That's the place on Mount Moriah where you are to worship me. But that was all changing now. And Jesus said it right here that true worship is not a matter of locality anymore. It's a matter of the heart. And the only kind of worship the Father is seeking, the only kind of worship he will accept, he goes on to say, is worship in spirit and in truth. And notice verse 24, how emphatic he is. He said, God is spirit, and those who worship him, what? Must worship in spirit and truth. It's emphatic. It's definitive. This is an injunction by Jesus that is not left open to ambiguity or discussion or negotiation. He makes it very clear that if you're going to be a true worshiper, then you must follow these guidelines. First of all, the only kind of worship the Father will accept is worship in spirit. What does that mean? Some churches mean it means that you, you know, start running around the room and back flips off the chairs and hanging from the chandeliers because that's spirit, worship in spirit. No, that's not what it means. To worship God in spirit means you are born of the spirit. Nobody can worship God acceptably who has not been first born of the spirit. John verse 3, verse 3, Jesus answered, Nicodemus, a very religious man, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again or born of the spirit, they cannot see the kingdom of God. In Proverbs 15, verse 8, the sacrifice, or in other words, the worship of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. You cannot worship God unless you're saved. You're redeemed. And you can't do that until you receive Jesus into your life as your Lord and Savior. Then the Holy Spirit moves in. Then you're, then you're born of the Spirit. You're connected to God, Spirit to Spirit. 
And now you can offer him acceptable worship. That's what it means to be to worship God in spirit. Look, no matter how religious people are, they cannot offer God acceptable worship if they haven't been born of the spirit. If they're not genuine born again Christians. Remember this. You can't join the church of Jesus Christ. Not the true church. I'm not saying you can't join a church that claims to be a church of Jesus Christ or represents Christ. There are churches everywhere. You can join all kinds of churches. I'm talking about the true church, the invisible church, the body of Christ. No one can join that church. You have to be born into it. Born into it. And that's what makes you a true worshiper in spirit. And then once a person is born of the spirit, in other words, they're saved, then they must also worship God as Jesus said, in truth. What does that mean? It means you worship God according to the truth of God as revealed in his word. Let me read to you Matthew 15, verses 8 and 9. Jesus said of very religious folks in his day, the scribes and the Pharisees and so on, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines of the commandments of men. Worship is a matter of the heart. It's not outward. It's not candles and, and incense and stained glass windows and so many other little props that people look to to make them feel like they're worshiping God. God looks at the heart. So many churches have so many man-made rules and commandments that, that go against what God has said. They think they're worshiping God, but God is rejecting it. Look, this would include Christian cults like Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists. It would also include false religious systems like the one I grew up in, the Roman Catholic Church. So Roman Catholicism would be on the list, which teaches that faith in Jesus plus Good works, going to Mass, lighting candles, praying rosaries, keeping holy days, and so on. All of that is, is essential and necessary if you're going to properly worship God and get to heaven someday. No, it is not. This is not what the Bible teaches about how we get to heaven and how we worship God. Look, for many centuries, devout Catholics, Catholic mystics, fasted so much as a way to punish themselves, because they have been taught that they have to punish themselves to fully atone for all their bad deeds, all their sins. And not a few Catholic mystics over the centuries, in an in, in in a attempt to punish themselves that they might atone for their own sins and worship God, well, they fasted so much they literally starved themselves to death. Some say, wow, their devotion was, wow, what piety. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, what stupidity. What a tragedy. All because they didn't go to the word of God and find out what he said about how he is to be worshipped. You realize that every year in the Philippines at Easter time, devout Catholics walk barefoot on rocks and broken glass where they flagellate themselves with whips on their bare backs to bring to reduce their backs to raw meat and bloody and so on. Why do they do that? It's their way of being devoted to, to exercising a, a, a worship for God, you know? Again, atoning for their sins, punishing themselves. 
as a way of earning God's favor and having their sins forgiven and ultimately ultimately as a way of worshiping God. Folks, let me just say this. These forms of worship, quote-unquote, and we're done. Let me just say this while I close. These forms of worship are not, listen, are, are not according to the truth of God's word. He never commanded these kinds of things. Never prescribed them. He never told us that the work of Jesus on Calvary's cross was insufficient to purchase our salvation. And you've got to add to it. You've got to finish the work he began. So on these holy days, you walk barefoot, barefoot on broken glass and you whip your back raw. Because that's how you're going to earn God's favor. That's how you're going to have forgiveness of sins and a place in heaven someday. No, that's not true. They are nothing more than ignorant, blasphemous acts of man-made piety that God will not only not accept as worship, he rejects it, but will hold against them on the day of judgment because they blasphemed him by saying the work of Christ on Calvary's cross was not sufficient and I had to finish it, finish the work. So what I'm saying is, God, move over. You did most of it, Jesus, but you fell short. Let me take over. Let me go ahead and, you know, I can walk up, walk in enough broken glass and maybe walk up stone steps till my knees are bloody and whip myself raw and fast myself to death. Maybe I can finish then the work you began. God says, that's blasphemous. I will not share my glory with another. Jesus didn't hang on the cross and before he died and dismissed it by dismissing his spirit, he didn't say, it's almost finished. I'm, I'm rooting for you. Go ahead and finish it now. Earn, earn your salvation completely. No. It is finished. Greek tetelestai, paid in full. Paid in full. I won't have you turn there. But to all those that think they can add to the work of Christ, here's what God says in Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, Jesus, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Not on Jesus and Phil Ballmeyer, on Jesus. End of story. I don't add anything else. I can't. I just bow my knee and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. I receive you as my Savior. Your blood paid all my, for all my sins. And now give me the grace to be a true worshiper. To live for you in such a way as that everybody I come in contact with, they see how much I love you. I can tell them how much you've done for me. I just want to be a true worshiper. May God give us the grace to have that heart. Very important. So next week we will continue in this very important chapter. But, Lord, we, but right now we pray, Lord, Father, we just pray, Lord, thank you for your word and for the truth that you've given us. And thank you, Lord, that you are inviting us all to be true worshipers through salvation. But then as we walk in your truth and worship you according to what your word has said. We thank you, Lord, 
We praise you. We ask that you would continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.